or during dinner, I was actually um, talking to a delegate from the White House saying, which one is actually better for the Arab world? And I don't know whether you would agree with me that it's a difficult choice to, see, to say whether you know, a king would be better or a president would be better given, um, given how we live or our cultures. or So just your comments of which one is better. I can't, you know, as an American, I shouldn't make that judgment for you. It's not my judgment to make. You have to tell me what you think is better. Well, it will depend. If I'm standing here in front of you, I would say the monarchy is better. And I have, no. you can argue both no, ways. No, no, I, under I, under I understand this. I'm, I understand this. I, I, can, I, I think it is the height of arrogance for us to presume to tell the people of any country which is better. Great. I like that. Thank you. Colin Powell said, said to me that they're all monarchies anyway because they all call each other Bathists or, or Mullahs or whatever. They all want their, their oldest son to replace them. Right. But it, I mean, it always ends up that way. Mubarak, Abdullah, uh, King Abdullah, Hussein's. You go to Sif Gaddafi, you go to Mohammed VI. What's yeah. the difference? They all want their oldest son to be the next president. Yeah, except in the year like two. Like I hear it in this country. In, in <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I just don't think that in the year 2005 that theory is sustainable anymore. I think, I think the pressures and the openness and the ferment in these societies, I just don't think you can sustain that automatically, Chris. Next up. My name is Arpit Malvi. I'm studying electrical engineering in Stanford University. First of all, I would like to thank both of you to be here today. My question is about Libya. and. I would like to know what was the process like to convince Colonel Gaddafi oh to uh, yeah. give up, at least to convince him to loosen control, and also why we are not able to do the same, why we fail to do the same in Iraq, and why oh we are not able to do sure. the same in North Korea. Thank well, you so much. Well, it's interesting. Gaddafi actually, uh, this is something I'll write about someday. You know, about 18, 19 months ago, he woke up one morning and he decided for his own internal reasons, life as a pariah state was no fun anymore. So who did he call? He didn't call Michael Moore, he called me. <laughs> called the British Secret Intelligence Service and we got into a negotiation with him over nine months. And one of the reasons the negotiations succeeded is, is we continually startled them with their knowledge of their programs. They, they, you know, they'd say, oh, we know this much, and we said, no, 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 here's what you got. And in the middle of the negotiations, we took a ship off the high seas with centrifuges destined for Libya, took them off the boat, and showed up and said, by the way, now we have your nuclear program penetrated. What do you want to do here? We're ready. You, you're not so basically, it was clandestine. It was secret. One of my best officers, one of the best British intelligence officers, led the negotiations. And we, over nine months, made very steady progress. And a country was disarmed because of our knowledge. Gaddafi, you know, Gaddafi's, you know, you know, I would say euphemistically, he's a very interesting guy, okay? <laughs> Why did he do it? I don't, you know, one, he, ha he has an Islamic problem in his own country. Two, his kids aren't getting educated anymore. Three, his oil industry is in arrears. Four, he saw 135,000 guys sitting in Iraq and he's wondering whether he was next. Some complex of these issues made him believe, I got to get out of this and get into the modern world because I'm not going to survive. This is how I, this is my supposition. Now, why don't you convince, why don't you convince a guy like 
Well, because a guy like Kim Jong-il, he's got the missiles and the nukes. And he thinks his strategy is different. Each one of these guys has a different sense of their vulnerability and a different sense of what they think plays. One size doesn't fit all. Next. Over there. My name is Hashem Debas from Jordan, and I go to MIT. I have two quick points. First, I wanted to ask you if you could comment about the, um, let's say, authenticity of the Photoshop images Colin Powell presented to the UN. And, They're authentic. Uh, and the second, the second question was, you're talking about um, the issues of reform in the Middle East, and I'm wondering whether, you know, what, what uh, position leaders have to, you know, are put in or, or what roles they should play when um, the people of these countries don't, don't accept this reform because they feel that it's um, coming from international pressure as opposed to being, ah. be, it, be it, you know, this ah. reform is, is uh, positive or negative for the country. They don't want it yeah. because... Well, it's, a, it's a very, it's an excellent point. If people believe this is, this is an ex exogenously, if this is directed from someplace, I want you to think about any American, would we do something because someone else told us to do it? The answer is hell no, we wouldn't do it. These are, these are issues that have to emerge from within. Well, all we can do is, is, is insist that those voices be heard and let them take their natural course. You do have an obligation to do that. But the notion that you, you, if you propagate and lead people to believe that the only reason this is happening is because you told them to do it, it'll kill it dead in its tracks. You've got to stand away from it. Yes, you have to nurture it. Yes, you have to encourage it. But you have to let it develop quite naturally on its own. And you have to let people inside these countries take responsibility. Is Ukraine the model for that? Well, Ukraine is certainly one model that other countries have looked at. All the Arab countries saw what happened in the Ukraine. They watched what happened in Kyrgyzstan. Everybody's watching this real time. 20 years ago, we couldn't see this real time. This is now in everybody's living room. So people see that when things go awry, I mean, you know, in, in the Ukraine, they tried to steal the election. People stood up and said, you can't steal it. And they won. Imagine the empowering effect that has on people in countries who say, my goodness. They didn't roll out the military. They didn't have a crackdown. You know why? Because the whole world is watching. Everybody is now watching. It's different than it once was. So, um, well, we look at what's happening in Iraq and everything. But if we take a step back, we, we remember Twin Towers just down here, what happened there. Now my question to you is, where in the world is Osama bin Laden? We still haven't smoked him out of a cave. Is he in a beach, on the beach in Durban in yeah. South Africa? Yeah. Where See, is he? Yeah, well, I wouldn't tell you uh, <laughs> in any event. But here's, here's, what you, here's what you need to understand about this. If you look at what's happened since 9-11, three-quarters of the al-Qaeda leadership structure, that once, the central management structure that once existed no longer operates. The plan is to strip away all that senior operational talent and create a vacuum between him and them. And out of this strategy, we will get a break. I know how we're going to catch him. I can tell you the scenario. I wish everybody would just shut up about him long enough <laughs> to give us a chance to do our job. Remember Panama? We chased Noriega around a country that we owned for five days and couldn't find him. Circumstances. But the point is. The guy's six foot eight. Yeah. That's tall for the Arab world. Yeah, right. He's riding a burrow and he's on dialysis. <laughs> Why was he so hard to track? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, I love these guys. I love these guys a lot. They couldn't find them with both hands on their best day. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You all think this, it's not funny. This is the hardest work we do, tracking people. 
running people down systematically, breaking up the cells we've broken up around the world has been enormous success because of knowledge and target and, the, and a big worldwide coalition. Uh, there will come a day when we get this guy. There's an enormous amount of effort. He's got some advantages. They're not, they're not advantages that will last him forever. Patience is the key here. And this is something we take extremely seriously. And uh, while it's the butt of jokes, someday you'll be reading about it in the paper and you'll be thanking us. Let's try to finish up. Everybody standing. Next to no, next um, Sean Campbell from Oxford University. And um, my question is about North Korea. Uh, and I think, you know, your point about not wanting to reward Kim Jong-il for cheating, you know, is really well taken. But also, I mean, just from the perspective of a layman reading the papers, the scary thing seems to be that we don't also really have the capacity to punish him for cheating. How would you um, want to punish him? Well, I mean, that's actually my question to you, is like how you think that, I know you're not a policymaker, but how listen, you think Listen to me, listen to me. I, I'd say a couple of things to you guys. First of all, there are two countries on the table, Iran and North Korea, where people are running around thinking about punishing people, right? I want to tell you something. As someone who led people for the last nine years, the American military and the American intelligence community is tired. There is nobody who's sitting in the locker room who hasn't played at least 10 innings of a baseball game, either in Afghanistan or Iraq. And I would argue that what we need to do now is rely on diplomacy, rely on our international allies, use the UN, use the six-party talks, and patiently bring an entire community with us to get to an outcome and stop talking about, you know, naturally we have to hold all our options. Naturally, a president reserves the options to do things, but this is a moment in time where patience is required. And we need everybody else in this game with us. And the instruments of our power need a break. So I think everybody needs to calm down a little bit. Hi, I'm Amy Wilkinson, White House Fellow. My question is looking forward, how can we continue to improve our intelligence capacity? Not and with the law that was passed. I'll tell you that. And specifically, how can we uh, <laughs> reach it? What did you mean? What, what we've essentially done is, is we've basically created another huge layer of bureaucracy. You have taken the leader of American intelligence and taken him away from line management of troops, people who run covert action, clandestine operations, all source analysis. We're and John Negroponte is a great man, and I love him. So we're now going to give John 1,000 people. These 1,000 people are going to have to go get informed about what the other thousands of people are doing. And we have, we have created the myth on terrorism that in the 21st century, structure is what matters and not data. We've put a wire diagram in place that rearranges the power relationships in Washington and led everybody to believe that that's going to help us catch terrorists. There is nobody in Washington, D.C. who has ever caught a terrorist in their entire life. <laughs> okay? And, that's, and now, we've, now we've got this layer. And I'll tell you something. They're going to come back. And what happened here is the 9-11 Commission hid this neat diagram on page 328. The Kerry campaign said, let's take it. The Bush guy said, we better take it because they said take it. And then something happened. The law passed. And then they said, oh, my God, what do we do? Well, we've got to now enact this thing. The DNI has, I would argue, has no more authority than I do. We didn't give them all of the budgets of the agencies. We didn't give them hire and fire authority. We didn't do any of those things. We've created another layer. The key about the key this is speed, agility, and data. And in the domestic construct in the year 2005, 
The solution is a digital database that allows our country to be wired together so that information flows. Right. That's the solution. It, the other part of my question is how do we reach across international borders and encourage others to help wow. us? But we've built an enormous international coalition. Virtually every Arab and Muslim country is on our side. People say to me, what do you think about the French, Mr. Director? And then they snicker, snicker, snicker. They're, the French are about one of our best counterterrorism allies. They understand North Africa and terrorism better than anybody in the world because they live through Algeria. So there's a huge coalition out there that we've built patiently over 30 years in the intelligence channel. It's on our side. That's why we're winning. Great. We're getting the hook now. I'm sorry. One more question is all we got. Um, you, my name is Olka Hansen. I'm a Marshall Scholar at Oxford. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times that the CIA and, and the people who work under you don't have a political agenda in making their reports. But I think politicians and policymakers will use those reports in ways that kind of fit their ends. To what extent do you think you and others in the intelligence community have a responsibility to stand up and not let yourselves be used in that yeah. way? And how do you right. think we stop potential retribution like what happened to Valerie Plume? Well, look, look here, here's what I need to tell you. I mean, you know, the same question was asked to me in, in congressional testimony. Well, can you please tell us every time you told the president and the vice president to not do something? The answer is no, I'm not going to tell you. But you have to understand I'm not a wallflower, and we didn't sit around and say, oh, yeah, it's okay to say this and okay to say that. At the end of the day, I've worked from two parties, worked on two sides of the aisle, worked for the Democrats. Where there is gambling in this casino. There is no set of policymakers that never tried to take a little bit of data and move it in their day. And all we can do is, in the confines of our interactions, which I believe in this world should be discreet and private, state our position as forcefully as we know how, and we did. Now, did I, did I clear every speech that everybody, you know, when they on meet the press or on your, no. They're responsible adults. We don't do this every day. I can't, spend my, I can't spend my time. I can't spend my time watching every statement everybody makes. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be doing my job. But that we did our job, that we carefully evaluated what should be said or not said, yeah, we did our job. Perfectly, probably not. Evaluate it. History will evaluate all this in, in its proper construct. Last question I want to put to you. You've got in this room incredible people. I met them yeah. last night. The linguistic ability, the cross-cultural skills yeah. are so good you can't tell where people are from. Right. I mean, it's unbelievable. I was getting confused last night. <laughs> uh, who's this fellow? Constantine. Are you here? Where's Constantine? <laughs> this guy's unbelievable. He's been in the country seven years. He talks like an American. He talks better than, than yeah. you do, actually. Um, <laughs> it's not hard. It's not hard. It's Should not these hard. guys become, and women think about becoming agents? I mean, uh, uh, so they, first, let me, let me, let I mean, I'm serious. The, the, These are, this is the talent pool. Okay, okay. Genius listen, and cross-cultural skills. Should they become spies? No. Listen, listen. <laughs> yeah, listen. Listen, what I said at the outset, what it said at the outset, it's, it's not a life for everybody, okay? What I said at the outset is to serve in some capacity. Serve. I don't care where you serve. We need your talent and your brains. I'd love for half of you, if you're Americans, to come to the back of the room later and we'll sort of do some deal making about your futures. But, and we need the highest quality people. But the, the, what you need to remember is serve something. Serve the UN. Be a teacher. Be a missionary. Be a relief worker. Join the military. Be an intelligence officer. You have such enormous skills and credentials in your bios. If, if it's about getting rich, go, go get rich. It's great. You'll be as boring as hell, even with all your money, okay? Because nobody tells better stories than public servants tell about the experiences they had in their lives. 
and nobody feels better about what you did to impact humanity than we do. Sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. We make mistakes, but I can tell you, you get up every morning, you go to work, and you're just charged up about the fact that you have a chance to do something good today. Nobody can give you that if you're not serving. So, you know, everybody who wants to work for the CIA, I'll see you downstairs at noon. We'll take a little ride. Otherwise, <laughs> thank you.